Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today we are studying yet another iconic Perak, the fifth chapter of Malachim Bet, which dramatically shifts our lens away from Elisha and away from B'nai Israel and opens in Aram, telling us that there is this great general of Aram named Naaman, who is esteemed and successful and honored and valiant and a mitzorah. He is afflicted by the spiritual disease of Tsara'as. We're told that on one of Naaman's raids to Israel, he had taken a young Israelite captive, a young Israelite woman captive, who had served, uh, who continued to serve as his wife's maid. And she had, I suppose, the, the gall to open up her mouth to her mistress and to tell her, you know, noticing that Naaman had Tsara'as, that, that Naaman should go to Israel to a prophet in Shomron, i.e. Elisha, and that Elisha could help cure Naaman of his Tsara'as. Naaman gets that information, and he requests from the king if he could go to Israel to try and pursue this possibility of being cured. Pausing here, we already have what I think is an amazing uh, first element of the story, and that is this lowly Israelite maidservant essentially telling this great and one of the most powerful people in the world what to do. And those kinds of dynamics not only make this perek delicious, uh, just fascinating, it's such an amazing story, but it also gets to the very heart of the message of the perek, which hinges on uh, the idea of humility and those who are empowered and the dynamics between the empowered and the disempowered and those who are empowered being brought low. Uh, Here already we have kind of foreshadowing that theme or the first expression of that theme as this young uh, Israelite woman is telling Naaman what to do. It's interesting. Okay, so the king sends Naaman to Shomron to speak with the king of Israel king of Israel is not named here. Um, perhaps it's Yehoram. Uh, and uh, Aram, the king of Aram, sends gifts with a letter that basically demands that the king of Israel heal Naaman. But this causes the king of Israel to panic. He even tears his clothing out of a sense of despair, feeling that this is perhaps, firstly, feeling that he's going to be unable to meet this request, to satisfy this request, and also feeling that uh, because of his failure, it's going to be a pretext for war. Now, it's worth pausing here because this is such a rich moment. Why did the king of Aram send this message to the king of Israel asking him to heal Naaman? Why didn't he send Naaman right to Elisha? Or why didn't he send a letter to the king specifying that he was looking for a specific prophet, looking perhaps for Elisha in Shomron? Why did this letter go to the king, and why did it request that the king heal Naaman? Clearly, the king of Aram thought that the kingship and the prophetic class in Israel work together, hand in glove. Asking the king to heal this person is the same thing as asking the prophet. In the ancient world, in the neighboring uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries— Religion was a means of, right, the pagan religion was a means of controlling the masses. You used it to extract money. You, extru- you used it to extract loyalty, to provide a, a certain sense of, 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 of a framework for understanding the world and oneself and identity. The notion that a prophet and a king uh, would have an oppositional relationship, uh, as was the case in Israel, was, simply made no sense, right? Obviously, the king used religion as a means of securing power. Those two things are going to work together. The king of Aram, therefore, sent this message to the king of Israel under the assumption that the king of Israel would be able to heal Naaman because uh, the king of Israel is, of course, going to be the high priest, the chief prophet, or in the pagan realm, uh, the, the king was often a self-proclaimed son of God. So, uh, so 
his sending this message and sending the Amman to the king reflects that worldview. But he couldn't have been more wrong uh, with respect to Israel, as the king uh, knows that he is anything but any of those things, right? He's not the one who's going to be able to actually heal. And in fact, he knows that he has a bad relationship with the true prophet who could actually help. And that's why the king of Israel despairs in this moment. And so there's this great irony here of these two contrasting worldviews at play. And it's an irony that is at once sad. It's sad in this particular context because of how wrong uh, the king of Aram was, how wrong he was to think that the king should be uh, working together with the prophet. So that's, that's the irony, the sad part of the irony. But in general, it's something worth celebrating. And that is that the, the prophet is not just the mouthpiece of the king and that uh, the the prophet is not an employee of the king, but that there is um, a certain amount of integrity to the prophet of Israel working independently from the king, and at times, as was often the case, working even in opposition to the king. So it's a fascinating way of highlighting the unique character, and as I said, the contrasting worldviews of the nation of, uh, of, of Aram versus the, the, the nation of, uh, of, of, of Israel. In any event, Elisha hears what's going on, and he sends a message to the king saying that he is willing to help. And so Naaman goes to Elisha. But he does so in a way that reflects a certain degree of haughtiness. He comes to him on a mighty chariot, and he doesn't come and, and prostrate himself before Elisha asking for help. He stands at the entrance of Elisha's home, assuming that, uh, that Elisha is going to come out to him, be honored to come and stand before him. But that is not what happens. Instead, Elisha sends a messenger to tell Naaman what to do, which is a big slap in the face. You have a big dignitary from the, a superpower coming to visit this, uh, to visit Elisha, and you'd expect Elisha to come out and give him an audience and give him kavod, and uh, nope, he sends a messenger. He won't even take an audience with Naaman. And if that wasn't disrespectful enough, the content of the message goes even further to really humble Naaman, because the message is, go and dunk seven times in the Yardane River, in the Jordan River. And hearing this, Naaman is infuriated Undoubtedly, also because it came through a messenger. Um, he's infuriated. He said, I expected some holy man to come out and wave his hands around and utter some, uh, some mystical sayings and you know, do the whole uh, holy man bit. I didn't expect you to tell me to go take a bath. And in the Yardane, no less, he said, we have superior rivers in Aram. I didn't come all the way here to dunk in the Yardane. And so he's completely dismissive of this, uh, of this counsel, of this advice from Elisha. And he begins to leave and to head home. When once again, great wisdom comes from a lowly place. And one of his servants tells him, my Lord, why not just give it a shot? And Naaman, and Naaman listens. He does. He goes, he dunks in the Yardin, and immediately he is cured of his tsaras. And he then returns to Elisha, but now he is a changed man. Once he was this great warrior, he was sure of himself. He wouldn't even walk before Nam. I wouldn't even walk before Elisha. Now he comes before Elisha. He describes himself as his servant. Right? I am. I am your servant, Elisha. I, you are my master, and he professes faith in uh, in Hashem. He has been lowered. He has been humbled. He has been taken off his pedestal, and that's precisely why he was healed. He offers Elisha payment. And Elisha refuses. And here again, we have this fascinating contrast between Aram and Israel. In Aram, it was a matter, of course, that the prophets worked for profit. Not so in Israel, and certainly not Elisha, 
who would never cheapen this moment and this miraculous deliverance by taking personal gain. He refuses, and that refusal seemingly even further impresses Naaman, who then begins to beg Elisha for forgiveness for the fact that he would go together with the king of Aram to, to bow before Rimon, who was the Aramean storm god. He says, the king essentially forces me to do this. He puts his hand on mine. He forces me to participate in this. Uh, and, and he's begging for, for Elisha's forgiveness. And Elisha grants him forgiveness. It's, it's interesting here again. We have another very clear expression of the way in which the king and uh, the religion in Aram were in lockstep. And, 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 and for Naaman to not go and worship Rimon would have been uh, a sign of disloyalty to the king of Aram. So you see politics and religion are so deeply bound up together and the, uh, the priesthood and the, the prophetic class, of course, uh, working in tandem in Aram. Um, and that's, that's very much uh, a clear, one of the important theses of this parak that are being articulated where the foci, foci of the parak is that that's not the case when it comes to, uh, to the nation of, uh, of Am Yisrael. Of course, um, this seems to be like the, the happy ending of the parak, And, you know, Alicia says, you know, go in peace. And Naaman heads back to, to Aram and all is well. But then there's one more curveball. Gehazi, who is Alicia's student, he can't bear to see Naaman go back to his land with all that money that he was prepared to lavish on Alicia his ser- and, and Alicia's servants. So he runs after Naaman, who, seeing him come, uh, uh, seeing him uh, approach his chariot, Naaman gets off of his chariot. Another sign of respect shows how he is this changed man. And uh, Gehazi tells him that oh, in the last minute something changed. Uh, some more people arrived, and it turns out we actually need that money. And Elisha sent me to tell you that we really need you to pay us so and so amount. And Naaman is happy to uh, to to give him whatever he asked for. Of course, that was a lie. He was not truly sent by Elisha. And this is a huge breach and a huge betrayal. Not only is it a betrayal because he's lying, but by taking this payment, supposedly on behalf of Elisha, he cheapened and diminished the power of this miracle from God. Right? We have time and again in, in Tanakh, and even, uh, yeah, so time and again in Tanakh, we have this idea that Hashem performs a miracle, uh, let's say the miraculous victory of uh, over Yericho, and then there's a mandate, don't take the spoils of that war. Because when there's a miracle, you don't take, you don't benefit from that miracle. By taking the, the profits, by taking the booty, the spoils of the war in Yericho, that would cheapen the miracle of Yericho. And the same thing here, right? This is the same theme being expressed. When, when Hashem performs this miracle, uh, you don't take payment for having done so. And so this was a great breach. And when he returns... Uh, despite uh, trying to cover it up, Elisha exposes exactly what uh, Gehazi had done, and he curses Gehazi and his family and his descendants that they will be afflicted with the very same tsaras that had been on Naaman. Which is to say that just as Naaman had been afflicted uh, because of this sense of hubris, because he was so haughty um, and was only healed because he was, he was willing to be brought low and humbled, uh, so too when it comes to Gehazi. Uh, Gehazi has just displayed an enormous lack of humility by contravening the words of his master, Elisha, and then lying to Elisha's face. And as such, he is now going to suffer the very same consequences uh, that Naaman had suffered for his own lack of humility. So to kind of summarize what I think are the two, are two of the major uh, foci of this parak, the two theses of this parak, number one uh, is that 
um, uh, a person who is who lacks humility needs to be brought low, needs to be humbled, uh, and uh, and needs to be willing to uh, sub- subject themselves uh, to the will of Hashem. Uh, if you fail to subject yourself to the will of Hashem, uh, you will suffer, uh, as Naaman did at the outset of the parak. Uh, but ultimately, by by becoming uh, humbled, he was healed. And Gehazi went in the opposite direction. In the beginning of the parak, he was this loyal servant to Elisha, as we saw in the last parak as well. And then when he when he when he breached uh, that relationship and when he dis- displayed great a great lack of humility, he was then afflicted with Sarah. So that's I think a, a very core message of the parak. And then along the way, we had all these very powerful points of contrast between the Aramean perspective, the pagan perspective on the one hand, and the Israelite perspective, which showed us so powerfully the unique quality. Uh, and the um, unique character and sense of integrity that marked the uh, prophet, the Nevi'im of, uh, of Israel, uh, who were there. These, the Nevi'im were not there to, be a simple, to simply be the employee of the king, not a prop of the king, but were there as an independent voice and a kind of corrective to a king uh, to whom they were more often than not, unfortunately, uh, at odds and a kind of a counterweight. That's it for today. Chazak ve'emats and happy learning.